North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. Their first historic meeting in Singapore all now looks set for round two. In the wake of that first summit, though, in Singapore, why does North Korea deserve a second summit? It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Kim Jong-un is looking very forward to it, and so am I. We've made a lot of progress as far as uh, denuclearization is concerned. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. On this episode of The Impossible State, we welcome a special guest who joins us by phone all the way from across the pond. Dr. Ramon Pardo is a lecturer at the London Asia Pacific Center for Social Science and a committee member of the EU's Council for Security Cooperation in the Asia Pacific. Dr. Ramon offers a European perspective of U.S.-North Korea relations and what's happening in the Koreas. He joins me and CSIS's top Korea expert, Victor Cha, to discuss the hubbub ahead of the next Trump-Kim summit. Dr. Ramon Pardo, Dr. Victor Cha, we now know a location at a time for the second Trump-Kim summit, February 27th, 28th in Hanoi. What should we expect and what's changed since the Singapore summit? Victor? So this is a highly anticipated meeting, of course, the second summit between the two leaders. Uh, I think there are a lot of expectations on this meeting um, because the Singapore summit gave us a statement of principles where both leaders would like the negotiation to end up, which is a nuclear-free Korean peninsula, a peace treaty, and a declaration ending the Korean War. So we know what the principles are. We know what the agreed-upon outcome is. And then we've had like six or seven months of some movement, but not movement enough that at least people in Washington would consider considerable progress. So there's a lot of expectations that this meeting in Hanoi create actual tangible steps forward in implementing this Singapore declaration. Ramon, what do you think about it from your perspective on the other side of the pond? Well, I think I would agree that there hasn't been much progress uh, since the Singapore summit. And I think that unless the U.S. and North Korea think they can get something tangible, it wouldn't make sense for the summit uh, to take place. It might even be postponed. So I'm expecting an actual agreement with uh, concessions or actions uh, from both sides and probably North Korea being a little bit clearer about what it wants in the short term, not in the long term, but in the short term from the U.S., And the same from the U.S. side. What do they want North Korea to do in the next few months to demonstrate that at least they are willing to consider denuclearization? Whether they do it or not is a different matter, but at least they are willing to to take steps in that direction. Yeah, but guys, is this meaningful or is this just more posturing? I think the real challenge of this summit is they have to get something that is tangible enough so that you can credibly say the diplomatic process is meaningful. It's actually leading somewhere. Moving forward. Moving forward. Uh, I'm pretty certain, as Ramon said, they wouldn't have announced this unless they think they're going to have some tangible outcomes. And it could be pieces of the program uh, and maybe a commitment to a fuller declaration. You know, so that would be meaningful. So, So there's that aspect of it. And then the other aspect is, at least from a U.S. perspective, what are we going to give up? to get all that? And is the president going to give up too much to get all that? I think that's a big concern in Washington. Um, lots of concerns about whether he will you know, pull a rabbit out of his hat like he did in Singapore, where he all of a sudden decided to suspend exercises without telling the South Koreans, or in fact, without even telling his defense secretary. Our, our training exercises with South Korea. That's right. Yeah. And so lots of talk about whether we're going to give up too much 
And are we going to get anything that we really want in return? Well, I think the hope is that there may be small pieces that they'll give up in terms of certain sites. But the real question is whether they will uh, make the commitment to do a declaration because a real denuclearization process can't take place without a declaration. Frankly, we tried to do it 10 years ago with a partial declaration, and it clearly didn't work, mm -hmm. right? Because it's really the second program, the uranium enrichment program, that I think the United States is after, and we can't denuclearize it if they don't admit having it. That's the really important piece for the United States. And then again, the challenge is how do you get the things that you want and what are you willing to give up in return that is meaningful to the North Koreans, but not something that really undercuts our alliance equities in the region? So you're thinking they're going to actually admit the uranium enrichment program? I, I, no, I don't know. I mean, I think okay. that's what we want, what we but, want. I, but I just don't know. Okay, Ramon, we in Washington often see North Korea from a U.S. perspective, you know, whether it's the strange relationship between Trump and Kim, you know, where they're calling each other names, you know, little rocket man and so forth, to the North Korean threat to the homeland, which we feel is very real. In Europe, how do people in different countries see North Korea and what do they think about U.S. DPRK relations? Well, I think we, we have to begin by saying that uh, I think you're pretty much everyone would agree that the crisis uh, is a result of the behavior of North Korea. So no one would blame the U.S. or South Korea or anybody else for the nuclear crisis, the ongoing nuclear crisis with, with North Korea. And no one, I think, believes that the North Korean regime is anything but one of the biggest abuses of human rights, for example. But having said that, there, I think there is more sympathy towards what Kim Jong-un might be trying to achieve, which is economic reform because we have seen it in Europe, right? We have former communist countries who were also under basically dictatorial regimes and they had to go a transition process and now they are part of the European community, so to speak. So from that perspective, when it comes to the open up process, reconciliation, the view might be different here than, than you have in, in, in Washington where you haven't gone through that process. And I wouldn't say this brings uh, sympathy uh, towards Kim Jong-un, but maybe it brings understanding towards what North Korea is trying to achieve. I would also add a second uh, aspect is that even though no one in, in Europe would feel directly threatened by North Korean uh, nuclear program or uh, weapons of mass destruction programs, there is proliferation to the Middle East. And that's a very big concern for the European Union, the fact that you have nuclear technology, missiles that have gone to different countries in, in the Middle East, maybe even North Africa as well, and, and these would fall in the hands of terrorist groups. And they could be used by the regimes in the area against each other, and this would create instability. So, so there is a threat perception that might be a bit different from the one in the U.S., uh, but it actually exists in Europe as well. At most, we would have sympathy for the devil here. <laughs> Ramon brings up a really good point, proliferation. Is that going to be addressed in this? Uh, yeah, I mean, presumably, I mean, that's certainly one of our big concerns uh, in the long term on North Korea. The North Korean leader already kind of addressed it in his New Year's speech when he essentially said that North Korea would not proliferate in the future, would not proliferate uh, nuclear materials or nuclear technology, which I think it's, again, it's one of these things with North Korea that could be seen as a good thing, right? It's meant to be a confidence building measure to assure the United States and the world that North Korea would not proliferate its technology. Uh, on the other hand, it could also be seen as saying, Yes, and we're going to keep our nuclear weapons. Thank you very much, right, right? As, a, as a responsible <laughs> nuclear weapon state. And so this is always, you know, the, this is, again, one of these dilemmas. You know, we can argue about whether we should engage or not. The point is, 
you know, Trump is going to do this. So we're in this diplomatic process. Then the questions become things like this. Like if they make a no transfer pledge, should we see that as a good thing or should we see that as essentially saying we're going to keep our weapons, right? Right. Or, or when they say uh, things like we will cap our fissile material production, which they again said in the New Year's speech, Kim Jong-un said it. You know, again, in the context of diplomacy, do you say, okay, that's a good, good assurance or is it bad because they're saying accept us as a nuclear weapon? Yeah, state? that they have fissile material at all. Yeah. You know, these are the dilemmas. I mean, if the argument is about whether we engage or not, then those who don't want to engage will say, look, that's just they just want to be accepted as a nuclear weapon state. But, you know, we have to play the cards we're dealt. And right now, Trump is into this. He's all excited about the second summit. So these sorts of questions then come up. Well, even he doesn't have much sympathy for the devil here. But I think in terms of of what he wants, he certainly wants a victory here. Yeah. And he wants to walk away with being known for changing things here. On his end, there's pressure to actually deliver something. Yeah. I mean, if you look around the world, we're committed to this trade conflict with China. We're committed to pulling out of Syria. We're committed to pulling out of Afghanistan. But this is the only place where he's committed to diplomacy. He's right? engaged. He's engaged and committed to, to diplomacy. So it's, I don't know, I, I find it kind of odd, <laughs> odd in the broader context of U.S. foreign policy. And probably in Europe, it's maybe seen even odder. But, you know, again, this is where we are. Ramon, from your side, what do you think about all this? I mean, can you tell us a little bit about how North Koreans are actually in Europe? I mean, I've heard that the largest North Korean diaspora outside of Asia is is in the suburbs of London. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the interesting thing is that I guess from a European perspective, not only we have uh, North Koreans, hundreds of North Koreans in in, in the UK, in South London and other places uh, across Europe, but obviously for Europeans, it's easy to travel to North Korea as well. So there are these contacts that made that more difficult for the average American, at least, to get with the North Koreans. What you do see here in Europe is that the fact that Trump is engaging with North Korea when at the same time we have a trade war with the European Union, he has threatened to withdraw from from, from NATO, uh, obviously, and then what uh, all the uh, different problems across the world that the U.S. is having or situation is having across the world, it is in a surprising, right? Uh, the sure. U.S. was very supportive of maximum pressure in, in 2017. It was uh, asking third countries actually to impose sanctions on, on North Korea, something that the EU is not always uh, willing to do. And then when the sudden change took place uh, in early 2018, there was support, but also wariness, because we know that there could be a change in position again taking place uh, in a few months or if this summit doesn't go well. So there is support for the engagement process. But on the, on the other hand, there's this view that we don't know what Trump uh, wants to do. And probably Trump or even people in Washington don't know what he's going to do in the next few weeks. Do they think he's more likely to negotiate with North Korea than he is with the European Union? Hmm. Yeah, sure that actually. I mean, with we, 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 the, the trade war is not gone. I mean, uh, in Brussels, the discussion is at uh, some point there could be new tariffs imposed or a threat of new tariffs uh, being imposed on the European Union. Uh, with NATO, we saw what happened uh, last year. There was a real fear in Brussels that he would announce that the U.S. was withdrawing from NATO. And, and, and even, even the U.S. embassy in, in Brussels couldn't give any reassurance that this was not the case, right? They didn't know if this was going to happen, that they couldn't say, well, this is not going to happen. So the fact that U.S. foreign policy has become less predictable under the current president mm. uh, means that even when it comes to, to North Korea, 
uh, there is support for the process and the EU stands ready to support any agreement that might be reached. But who knows, maybe there is no agreement and then we have to go back to maximum pressure. I never really thought about it in terms that the president of the United States may be threatening Europe more than he's threatening North Korea. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, (laughs) (laughs) that is the situation that we're in. And I think that everything that Ramon said about Europe would also apply to many of the countries in Asia. I think they feel the same way. There's so much unpredictability. There's all these calls for greater burden sharing by Asian allies. I mean, they just negotiated only a one-year agreement with South Korea on something called SMA, the Special Measures Agreement, um, in which South Korea basically had to increase their contribution by $100 million. But it's only a one-year agreement. Usually it's a five-year agreement, which means the poor negotiators have like a month off and then they got to start negotiating again <laughs> over this agreement. It's like when LeBron James signs a one-year contract. You That's gotta, right. Every year you got to re-up. That's right. Yeah. You, you, know, you, you sign a contract, you take a month off, and then you have to start negotiating <laughs> right. the rest of it. So that, I think, creates concern among countries, not just in Europe, but also in Asia, about you know whether the United States is really committed in the long term to staying because if you look at Trump's statements and we have looked at Trump's statements he has a very clear record of saying that he believes US military deployments abroad are a waste of money they allow our allies to free ride off us for security and meanwhile they fleece us on trade now obviously I don't agree with that and I'm sure Ramon doesn't agree with that but that is very clearly in his thinking going back for decades now Let's talk about the context that in the context of South Korea and President Moon. What's the EU ROK relations like at this time, Ramon? Well, it is interesting because his policy of uh, reconciliation, trying to to improve inter-Korean relations, uh, has a lot of support uh, across Europe. Uh, I go back to to something we discussed a little bit before that uh, in in Europe we have had reconciliation processes, obviously in in Germany, Northern Ireland, between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. So there's this understanding that uh, reconciliation uh, takes time. It's not going to happen in, in, in one year or two years. It's going to take uh, if it continues down the current path, at least a decade for North Korea and South Korea to improve uh, the relations substantially. So there is this uh, willingness to to wait and to understand that his policy uh, is going to take time if it's going to be uh, successful. Uh, having said that, when uh, President Moon visited the European Union and had the summit in, in October of, of last year, there was a awareness towards his uh, push towards uh, removing sanctions on North Korea. Uh, among other things, because we're waiting to see whether the U.S. and North Korea reach any sort of uh, of agreement. So there was this feeling that maybe he was trying to push too hard uh, to remove sanctions. Now, if there is an agreement uh, in a couple of weeks when we have the uh, the summit in Vietnam, then I think the European Union would very publicly become even more supportive of, of, of South Korean policy, including, for example, the potential for South Korean economic projects in, in, in North Korea. Uh, because this is something that European countries have tried in the past. It has been successful here in Europe. Economic cooperation, cultural exchanges, then leading eventually to a political reconciliation. So there's an understanding of what he really is trying to do here. Victor, what do you see as the EU's role in what's happening on the Korean Peninsula? I mean, a couple of things. The first is, again, I agree with Ramon that the EU was one of the stalwart supporters of the maximum pressure campaign. I think that was very important. They have in the past been supportive of the agreements and have contributed uh, particularly in the in the first deal to economic cooperation, energy assistance, 
uh, interim energy assistance to North Korea in return for freezing their facilities, which I think is a given in any sort of deal, even one that Trump will do in the future. And the EU will probably become more important in this regard in the future, because if we do get a deal that requires interim energy assistance for North Korea, Trump's not going to pay for it, right? He's not going to want to pay for any of this. So it's going to mean the allies and partners are going to have to probably play a larger role in that regard. And then, of course, as Ramon said, Kim Dae-jung did the sunshine policy 20 years ago. The EU countries were the countries that all normalized, except for France, right? The EU countries all normalized relations with North Korea. Some of them dual-hatted their embassies in Seoul. Some of them dual-hatted their embassies in Beijing. But a number of them went into North Korea and set up... Uh, their own embassy, including the British, uh, the Germans, and others. And when those people come out, and they do come through Washington, the German ambassador to Pyongyang, as well as the British one, they give a very you know hands-on, on-the-ground view of what's going on, what's going on in the country. So the EU, I think, actually plays a quite an important role, both on the pressure side and on the engagement side. And they actually have contact. They have much more contact. United States, we don't have anything in North Korea. You know, Sweden is our protecting power. And so they play an important role. Are there any differences between what the EU and the U.S. wants out of North Korea? I think not in terms of denuclearization or complete denuclearization or, or however we want to call it. I think the position is very similar. But I, I, I would say that maybe in, in the era of reconciliation, my view not being in Washington is that the European Union has been more supportive of, of South Korean policy. There has been some criticism, as I mentioned before of maybe uh, President Moon trying to, to go too fast. But on the other hand, a, lo a lot of understanding that sometimes the, per the perception is that maybe in Washington, the, the understanding is not as deep as it is here because we went through that process. But I would say the ultimate goal of denuclearization, and even when it comes to human rights, which we, we haven't talked much about today, I, th I think the, the goal is the same, right? An improvement in the human rights of the average North Korean, right, of the North Korean population. One difference, maybe you could argue, is that when it comes to potential political reform, if it happens uh, in, in North Korea, there are many EU member states that feel strongly that there should be an opening up uh, process because they went through, through that process and they understand how it is to live in a country that is uh, more free. So this might be not top of the agenda for the European Union, but there are countries within the European Union, especially Central Eastern Europe, that would like to see an opening up taking place, if not tomorrow, but at least in the not-too-distant future if the problematic process continues. So maybe that's something that in the U.S. is not top of the agenda right now. Well, let's talk more about human rights. What can the U.S. and the EU do to force North Korea's hand on human rights that they're not already doing? Well, I think from a U.S. perspective, maybe part of the challenge is getting our administration to put it on the agenda in a, in a discussion with North Korea. Right now, it doesn't seem to be anywhere near on the agenda. I mean, we still don't have a special envoy for North Korean human rights abuses um, in the Trump administration. And that's actually been allotted for by Congress, yeah, correct? Yeah, it's mandated by Congress. Yeah. And, uh, and so there hasn't been anyone in that slot. And then the UN Security Council last December um, chose not to uh, have a debate on UN, uh, UN human rights, which was one of the big shining accomplishments of the whole commission of inquiry process that took place over the past five years or so. Um, and so that was a quiet but a huge disappointment, I think, for the human rights community. And this is actually where the European Union plays an important role. There isn't a lot of confidence right now that the current composition of the Security Council will allow for a positive vote, um, even in the spring, on this human rights issue being discussed again in the Security Council. We don't have 
anybody there right now because uh, Nikki Haley has left. So there's no U.S. leadership there on, on the Security Council. And then there are members, I think, like permanent members like France and the U.K. that might play a role. I think Germany's in the chair. Is that right, right Ramon? Yes, yes. But then there are countries like Dominican Republic and Ivory Coast that are, you know, clearly going to be persuaded by China not to vote in favor. So, so it really is kind of up in the air right now. We're actually going to do a couple of things at CSIS over the next couple of weeks to look at this issue, to dig more deeply down on this issue, to see what can be done. And then there's the humanitarian aspect too. It looks like the administration is starting to reapprove visas for NGO workers going into North Korea, which again, it's all in the wrong context because now it's being looked at as a partial lifting of sanctions um, when it shouldn't be looked at that way. I mean, we shouldn't play politics with food. Um, uh, and, and then the humanitarian issue, because there's so much focus on that, that actually takes emphasis off of the human rights issue, right, which is a different basket of things. So it's, it's not an ideal situation now. And meanwhile, they're just getting a pass. Yeah, they're getting a pass on this on this the whole time, and you know now NGO workers are just happy if they can get into the country, getting approval from the State Department, and so it, it's it's uh, it's not a good situation. Well, actually, this is one of the areas. Going back to your point about the some EU countries having a, a presence in Pyongyang, where this actually helps, because you have countries such as the UK, Sweden, or Germany that have actually uh, embassies in Pyongyang, and they do discuss these issues with uh, with North Korea. They discuss the uh, human rights issues and and and. They discuss humanitarian concerns as well. In addition to this, you see how EU member states that have uh, embassies that come from Central Eastern Europe, such as uh, Czech Republic or Bulgaria or Poland, for example, they have gone through the process of the populations being uh, repressed and then uh, having freedom, right, or uh, going to a democratic system and their rights are actually being respected. And they do raise these issues through their embassies in Pyongyang. The EU-North Korea dialogue was last convened in 2015, but until it was being convened, human rights was one of the issues uh, that the EU put on the table. The European Parliament sent a delegation to to North Korea uh, late last year, and there might be a reciprocal visit uh, in the coming weeks or months. And this is one of the issues discussed as well. So at least the issue can be raised, and it's actually actively uh, being raised. And this comes from the fact that there are European countries that have uh, an engagement process with North Korea I do think that on the humanitarian issue, maybe we had the biggest difference last year between the U.S. and, and the European Union. That, that was the only instance in which across the whole of Europe there was a bit of criticism of the approach of the Trump administration, saying, well, humanitarian issues shouldn't be part of any negotiation. They are separate from nuclear issues, uh, human rights, uh, reconciliation. And countries such as Sweden or the U.K. or, or even France were actually asking the, the U.S. through U.N. channels, but also uh, bilaterally, uh, not to make this part of the political negotiation with North Korea. Can I just say that, I mean, it is an issue where I think it's easier to engage the North Koreans on these issues from Europe than it is from the United States, because from the United States, it looks essentially like a regime change strategy, right? That it's, these, this is human rights is just sort of the, the, the baseball bat of the Hawks and John Bolton that just want to smash the regime down. But, um, but I think there's much more of a chance for a dialogue for all the reasons that Ramon just mentioned on the European side. In addition, from the North Korean side, when um, there was a groundswell of um, uh, support for going after North Korean human rights, what did the North Koreans do? They went to Europe. 
right? The foreign minister went to Europe to try to talk to all the different European capitals as a way to try to prevent this wave that was coming at them in the UN. So, you know, there are incentives actually for the North Koreans to talk to the Europeans about it. I didn't really think of this way until I was listening to Ramon, but I think that 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 may be an area where the Europeans can actually gain more traction, at least than the United States for the time being. Because the diplomacy is much more active between the two on this. It's more active. And again, there's an incentive for the North Koreans, which, you know, the North Koreans need to have an incentive. They have no incentive to talk human rights with us because, you know, again, it's just the weapon of the hawks. I mean, we should change the way we talk about human rights with North Korea to try to be more effective. But for the Europeans, they do have an incentive, which is they don't want these resolutions coming in the UN every year that keeps putting the issue on the agenda. So they need to prove to European countries that they are trying to address these issues. And so like, I don't know, I feel like one of the low pieces of hanging fruit on this is to be able to do something with the North Koreans on uh, physically disabled, because it's an area where uh, I think there has been, there have been talks in the past. We saw them during the Obama administration. So there's an opportunity there to do something in terms of help for the physically disabled that could help to, I don't want to say check the human rights box, but could move in the direction of at least some conversation on human rights. But if we really wanted to be serious about it, we could, and we, it wouldn't be perceived as just a, a tool of the hawks. If we were consistently serious about human rights and made it a priority, it, it would be part of the talks just like with Europe, wouldn't it? I think the core way to address the human rights issue with North Korea for the United States is to say, if we're going to have a completely different relationship with you, yeah. if we're going to have a peace treaty and normalize relations, and if we're going to do real denuclearization, you need to have a more open society. There is no other way to do this. And so, you know, it should be framed in a way that's positive, saying, like, we want this to happen. We want uh, to have a new sort of relationship, and that can't happen without a change in, in sort of the way your society is ordered. Part of it is the diplomacy is not at that point yet, right? We're not at the point where we're on the precipice of talking about normalization and all these things. Then this might become a more uh, relevant issue. Yeah, and under any circumstances, these are all big asks when it, in their view. No, oh, yeah, hugely. And, and again, there's not a lot of trust there. So we may say it's about a new relationship, but they may be like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. We know what it's really about. Ramon, any final thoughts? One last point that uh, I think he builds on what... Victor was saying uh, uh, before on the issue of trust is that if you look at the EU sanctions, they are actually the autonomous sanctions. I'm not talking about support for UN sanctions. Uh, they are actually based on the UN sanctions, so they are not based on human rights. They are based on the on the nuclear program and uh, weapons of mass destruction program. And I think this is one of the issues that makes maybe the North Koreans more willing to discuss this matter with the uh, European Union uh, as well. The fact that it is not seen as putting as much pressure as others on on on, on this issue, right? And, and what you see in Europe is that there's this understanding that talks on denuclearization are going to be led by the U.S., that's, that's obvious. Talks on reconciliation are going to be led by South Korea, as uh, it should be, but on other matters that uh, would mean a transformation of North Korea, even if gradual, uh, the European can play an important role and its voice can be as important as, as for other international actors as well. You know, when the U.S. administration started to stop approving visas for humanitarian groups that have been long going into North Korea as part of what looked like sanctions tightening, I think that did create, uh, certainly created 
um, uproar here in the NGO community. And so, and so we did a number of stakeholders meetings with Steve Morrison, our global health security guy here, produced that film, that video yes. on, on global health security in North Korea. Which you can find on the CSIS website. Right, which you can find on the CSIS website. But in Europe, I think it was roundly criticized, right? It was roundly criticized as being, this is not the way you're supposed to do these things. So there's a lot, I think, that the EU Korea chair and the CSIS Korea chair see similarly. Although we'll see what happens after this, <laughs> after this summit in Hanoi. Maybe we can do another one and compare notes uh, between me and Ramon. We'd love to have you back, Ramon. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.